Good morning, Noblesville. How are you? My name is Jerry. I'm the campus pastor at our Carmel location. Excited about the 20-year service. I wonder if they're going to bring that young guy back that Paul that was doing all the talking with the buzzed head, right? I love Paul Mubal. Aren't we blessed to have an amazing lead pastor like Paul? I tease him, but man, what an amazing guy to follow as we follow Jesus together. So I'm going to take a moment to pray, and we're going to jump in, all right? Father, we thank you uh, for your presence in our life. We thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. Uh, we thank you, Jesus, for the way that you've saved us. And so, Holy Spirit, we pray right now. Uh, we don't just ask that you, you come and help us. We need you to help us. We need you to show us. We need you to guide us. So would you lead us through your word? Uh, and would you help us to walk away today with something, uh, not just that makes us know you better, but help us to follow you, help us to apply these things to our life so we can draw others to you for your glory, Jesus. That's our prayer. Uh, it's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Uh, if I haven't met you before, I would love to meet you, so feel free to come and uh, find me after service. My family has been a part of the Genesis family for about seven years now. We're so thankful uh, to be here, and it's always good to be back in Noblesville sharing a Sunday morning with you guys. Uh, a few weeks ago, I wrapped up a memoir that I've been reading this summer about a guy named Paul Hewson. Now, my guess is you probably don't know who Paul Hewson is, but I bet you know his stage name. And if you don't know his stage name, you probably know the name of his band. His stage name is Bono. His band's name is U2. Now, if you're like, I didn't know Paul Hewson, I don't know Bono, I don't know U2, I don't, I don't really know how to help you. You have missed out on some of the best music on planet Earth for the last 40 plus years. Now, obviously, I'm a fan, and so I was excited to read his memoir because I'm like, I, I want to know what the life of a rock star is like. And throughout his book, he writes about all these different relationships he enjoys. He talks about uh, his relationship with his mother, Iris, his father, Bob, his brother, Norman, the relationship with all of his bandmates, uh, his wife, Allie, their kids. I mean, relationships are just all throughout this book. And then he writes about some pretty famous friendships that he's made, like, Friendships with Frank Sinatra and Johnny Cash. I mean, can you imagine having those people as your friends? But then he goes on to write about powerful relationships with people like presidents, Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, and Barack Obama. I mean, what a life. This guy's had an incredible life. But if you were a rock star and you were writing your memoir, wouldn't you just be tempted to write about all the good stuff? and all the amazing things that have happened in your life. If it were me, I probably would avoid the things that would be embarrassing for me or my family. Well, Bono, he doesn't do that. And so late in the book, he writes about a conversation, a phone conversation that he had with his father, Bob, about 20 years ago. He gets a phone call from his dad and they start talking and his dad's like, hey, I just need you to know something. Your cousin, Scott Rankin, isn't your cousin. He's actually your half brother. You do the math on that. How's that work? His dad, Bono's dad, at the height of his career, at the height of his popularity, was calling to say, hey, I just need to let you know that at some point in the past, I, I slept with your Aunt Barbara, your mom's sister, and now your cousin. Scott, who you love is, is actually your half-brother. Now, I don't know why he felt the need to include that in his book. I don't know that he's from Ireland. Maybe he didn't think that us Americans would think, is he like from Kentucky or something? Is that just how that works? My in-laws are from Kentucky. I feel like I can make that joke. It's okay. It's okay. Don't be nervous. Don't be nervous. Now, it, think about it. Would you write a detail like that in your book? No, because why? Why, why would you include that? But here's, what, here's the lesson I walked away with almost instantly. 
It doesn't really matter how famous and rich you are, how popular you might be, how big your fan base is, how many continents you travel to. All of that's great. But if you have a family of origin, and we all do, it just means that your family has issues. Your family has some level of dysfunction, whether you want to admit it or not. And so today, we're going to look at the life of a man named Joseph, who, like Bono, has lived a fascinating life. I mean, this guy's life is incredible, but he comes from a family that was really broken, really, really, really dysfunctional. In fact, if you're like, well, I'd like to compare his family with my family, when you hear about his family, I promise you, you're going to feel at least normal, if not pretty darn good about your family life. So if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn to Genesis 37. Genesis 37, that's where we're going to begin today. Now, when you hear me talk about Joseph, you might be thinking, Joseph, that's the dad of Jesus, right? That's not this Joseph. The Joseph we're talking about lived a few thousand years before Jesus was born. And here's the baseline for his family. He had a father named Jacob, who God renames Israel, okay? He has a mother named Rachel. Steve talked about her last week. He had a little brother named Benjamin. So far, seems pretty normal, right? Well, Joseph also had three stepmothers, and one of his stepmothers was his aunt, his mother's sister. That's a little awkward, right? Three of them, and he had 10 older stepbrothers. That's just the baseline for their family. Now, you've probably heard the phrase, if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. Well, when you're living in a home with four mamas and 12 boys, I'm going to guess nobody's happy ever, 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 ever. There's just no happiness. So this is his family. This is where it begins. Let's pick up his story. Genesis chapter 37, verse 2 says this. This is the account of Jacob's family line. Now remember, Jacob is his father. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wife. So Bilhah, Zilpah, those are just two of his stepmothers. And Joseph brought his father a bad report. Now, what details can we glean here? Joseph is 17 years old when we meet him, okay? My son Jude, my oldest son, turned 17 last Saturday. He's a junior in high school. So if you need a frame of reference, think about a junior in high school. He's working alongside his stepbrothers, and he comes back and gives his dad a bad report. That's nothing new there. That's what brothers do all the time. But Kent Hughes points out that in the original Hebrew, the phrase bad report is always used in a very unique way. It's always used to mean an untrue report. Can you imagine a brother that would embellish the details to get his older brothers in trouble? Every little brother ever, right? And so he's kind of like a tattletale, maybe a little bit of a punk, but that's not all. Look at verse three. Now Israel, or Jacob, remember Israel, Jacob, same guy, his his dad. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. How many sons did Jacob have? He had 12. So what would make Joseph his favorite? Now, if you're just being logical, you might think, okay, well, was he the oldest? He wasn't the oldest. Was he the youngest? He wasn't the youngest. He was actually number 11 of 12. So what would make him his father's favorite? Well, the answer is simple, but a little complicated. Joseph was his father's favorite son because he was the firstborn son of his dad's favorite wife. I don't think there's anything wrong with having a favorite wife, by the way. I've had a favorite wife for 22 years. We celebrated our anniversary just last month. I love her. Her name's Casey, right? She's also my only wife, which is the way that God intends for marriage to work. One man married to one woman 
for the entirety of life. So the fact that Joseph's dad has four wives really complicates things in their family. And he doesn't just have a favorite wife, he has a favorite son. Now, I'm going to take a poll, and I need you to engage with me here, okay? How many of you think it's a good idea for parents or grandparents to play favorites? Just raise your hands. Okay, a couple hands. You probably thought you were the favorite, I bet, okay? How many of you think that your parents or grandparents played favorites? Just raise your hand. You probably weren't the favorite, and I'd love to help you with some counseling, right? Because you're like, this just isn't fair. You shouldn't play favorites. We all know it's not a good idea to play favorites in your family. Now can you appreciate the home life that Joseph is growing up in? But then things, they still get complicated. Verse 3, now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made an ornate robe for him. Now this ornate robe is where we get the idea for this week's sticker in, in our Sticky Stories collection, okay? And throughout history, a lot of people have imagined this robe being rainbow colored. I didn't see any reason as to why in any of the research that I did, but here's what we, here's what we do know. This robe was likely a coat or a tunic. It would have gone down to his wrists and down to his ankles. And the whole purpose of it was to be worn as a status symbol. Some would say it was meant to say, you don't have to do manual labor like everyone else in our family. It was definitely meant to show that he was the favorite and that when his father died, he was gonna receive the lion's share of the inheritance. Okay, so you can start to imagine again, all the tension in this family. Now, since it's back to school season, let's just put this in perspective for us. Imagine you're going back to school shopping with your kids or your grandkids and you take one of them and you buy them a brand new pair of Jordans and you're like, hey, everybody, the rest of you are going to Goodwill. We're just gonna see what we can find. How's that gonna go over? Okay, you guys have kids and like, you know, it's not gonna go over well. There's gonna be a fight. There's gonna be tension over that. And this is what we see playing out in Joseph's family. Jacob's blatant favoritism coupled with Joseph's immaturity was a recipe for disaster. And then we see this in Genesis 37, 4, when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and they could not speak a kind word to him. I mean, really no surprises there. Sibling rivalry is tense enough, but this is just everything keeps piling on. But then there's more details to Joseph's story. He begins to have a series of dreams that his family one day is going to bow down and honor him. It is not wrong to have dreams like that. We can't control our dreams. Now, you might want to consider how you share them. Like maybe you talk to your therapist or your dad privately and say, hey, here's this dream I have. What do you think it means? Apparently, Joseph comes down to the breakfast table wearing his big fancy coat and says, guess what, everybody? I had a dream that all of you are going to bow down and worship me not once but twice. Isn't that awesome? And how do you think his brothers responded? Not well. They began to cook up a plan to kill him. And by the end of Genesis 37, they're going to have their chance. So here's the story. The 10 older brothers go off into the field to tend sheep. And Jacob says, hey, Joseph, I got an idea. Why don't you go and check on them and bring back a report? So he goes. And when he finds them, they're about 60 miles away from home. 60 miles is a long way. They were way outside of dad's protective bubble for their punk little brother. And Genesis tells us they saw him coming in the distance. His brother saw him coming with that ornate coat. And they said, here comes that dreamer with that dumb coat. We're going to kill him. And so that's what they do. When he arrives, they rip off his coat. They throw him into a cistern, into a deep pit. And they're just going to leave him to die. 
He's either going to starve to death or he's going to be eaten by an animal. He's going to die. And then the writer of Genesis says they sat down to have lunch. Now, I've had some awkward lunch meetings, but can you imagine this one? Like, how do you eat when you've just put, you've thrown your brother into a pit to leave him to die? And then one of the brothers says, I don't know, this isn't sitting well with me. He's our brother. We don't want to be guilty of him dying. We don't want that over our, over our conscience. But there's some slave traders over there, and I bet we could sell them and make some money off of them. And so that's what they do. They pull him up out of the pit. They sell him. They make some money off of him. They tear his cloak. They dip it in animal blood. They take it back to their dad and say, hey, we think an animal has killed Joseph. And his dad begins to grieve. And meanwhile, Joseph is drug away to slavery in Egypt. Now, that's pretty dysfunctional. I mean, my family's not perfect, but this is really messed up. And so here's what happens to Joseph. Genesis 39, verse 1. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, brought him from the, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. Now, I want you to imagine you're Joseph. You go from being your dad's favorite, all this potential, and now you're a slave in Egypt, very far away from home. How would you feel? What feelings are you feeling? What thoughts are you thinking? I have to imagine that he felt betrayed. How could his brothers do this to him? He had to be angry and bitter. I mean, he was young. He had his whole life ahead of him. Now his future looks completely hopeless. I'm going to imagine he struggled with depression because he had all this freedom and now he's going to be forced to eke out a life as a slave. I'm going to guess he felt homesick. And with every passing moment, every day, his family, his father, everything that was familiar is now just a distant memory. But here's one. You think he felt forgotten? Forgotten by his brothers? Maybe forgotten by his dad. Surely dad's going to put on a search party, right? Nothing. Here's a big one, though. What about forgotten by God? How could a good God allow something horrific like this to happen to a guy like Joseph? Well, according to the writer of Genesis, God was completely aware of Joseph's situation. Look at Genesis 39, verse 2. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. Now, I realize we're in a church setting and we're studying from Scripture and you're going to be like, of course God was with him, Jerry. Like, no big shocker there. But this detail, this detail, I think, is the most important detail of the rest of Joseph's life. It dictates everything else that's going to happen. But on top of that, there's something hidden in this verse that... When I learned it, I thought, oh, wow, this is, we need to pay attention to this. In the original Hebrew, the word Lord isn't just God, it's Yahweh, the personal name of God. And it's used, Yahweh is used eight times in Genesis 39, but four of those times we learned that the Lord Yahweh was with Joseph. So here's what this means. During the darkest time of Joseph's young life, when nothing else seemed to make sense, Yahweh, the personal covenant God of Joseph's ancestors, the creator of everything, he was near, he was close, and he was at work in spite of all of the circumstances of Joseph's life. Now, we don't know much about Joseph's relationship 
with Yahweh at this period in his life. We know that Yahweh was with him. And if you read into the text, it seems to be that Joseph was learning to walk with Yahweh as well. And if you keep reading, you discover that the people around Joseph noticed that there was something different. Even his Egyptian master started to notice that Yahweh was with him. Look at Genesis 3, um, 39 verses 3 and 4. When his master Potiphar saw that the Lord Yahweh was with him and that the Lord Yahweh gave him success in everything that he did, Joseph found favor in, the, in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household and he entrusted to his care everything that he owned. And so for a while... Even though Joseph was a slave, he got to enjoy a little bit of independence and respectability. He was put in charge of this man's house. But then Potiphar's wife took note of Joseph, that he was young and he was handsome. And so she didn't just beg, she demanded that he come and sleep with her. And he said, I will not do that and sin against my God or my master. And so she falsely accuses him of rape. <clears throat> and then he gets thrown into Pharaoh's prison, the king's prison. And so his life just continues to spiral downward. I'm a slave, now I'm falsely accused, I'm a prisoner, but there was still one constant thing. Look at Genesis 39, 20. But while Joseph was there in the prison, the Lord Yahweh was with him. He showed him kindness and he granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison and he was made responsible for all that was done there. Verse 23, the warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with, the Lord Yahweh was with Joseph and gave him success in everything that he did. Now, poor Joseph can't seem to catch a break. Nothing is going Right, but the writer of Genesis is quick to tell us that even while life was pulling him down, the Lord Yahweh continued to lift him up. And after several years in prison, the Lord was gonna lift Joseph to a place that he could have never imagined. Through an unexpected series of events, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, the most powerful man in the land, has a series of dreams and they, they were terrifying to him. He didn't know what to do about them. But then he heard a rumor that there was a guy in his prison named Joseph that could interpret dreams. And so he sends for Joseph, he calls him up. And this is what we read, Genesis 41, 14. Pharaoh sent for Joseph and he was quickly brought from the dungeon. When he had shaved and changed his clothes, he came before Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream and no one can interpret it, but I've heard it said that you, when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Now, you wanna talk about some pressure. This is the most powerful man maybe even in the world. And he says, I hear that you can help me. And this guy has the power to set you free or to kill you. And what Joseph says next is really important. Look at Genesis 41, 16. Joseph says, of course I can. Why did you wait so long to call on me? By the way, what's in it for me? Well, that might be what we would expect for us to say. You would expect Joseph to say, but what does he say? I cannot do it. Joseph replied, but God, Yahweh, will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. Now, this is really gutsy for a lot of reasons. Joseph puts his faith in Yahweh on full display, but in Egypt at that time, they had over 2,000 gods and goddesses that they worshiped. Pharaoh could have been like, I really don't care about your God. I have a dream. Can we quit talking about that? I want an answer to this now. But Joseph had learned as a slave and now as a prisoner that Yahweh had been with him the whole time. And he learned that only Yahweh could give him the wisdom and the discernment he was gonna need to be able to interpret Pharaoh's dreams. And with the Lord's help, 
Joseph does. He interprets Pharaoh's dream. He says, here's what your dream means. There's going to be seven years of plenty in Egypt, and then there's going to be a famine in Egypt. But he doesn't just stop by interpreting the dreams. He says, here's what I think you should do. Now, he's standing in front of Pharaoh, and he says, by the way, here's, here's what I think you should do if you're wondering. I think you should find the most wise and discerning man to oversee the collection of food during these years of plenty so that when the famine hits, there will be plenty of food for everyone to share. Look at the, uh, Pharaoh's response, Genesis 41, 37. The plan seemed good to Pharaoh and to all of his officials. So Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the land, asked them, can we find anyone like this man, one in whom is the spirit of God? Now don't miss this. Pharaoh didn't just notice that Joseph's God was with him. Pharaoh noticed that the spirit of Joseph's God lived inside of him. Look at verse 39. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made all this known to you, there's no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. Now that is a dramatic turn of events. This guy's life is spiraling downward and then it's completely reversed. He goes from being a prisoner to the second in command. And look at verse 46. This is a really important detail. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Now, how old was he when we met him? 17. Now, you don't have to be like a mathlete to figure this out. That's 13 years. 13 long years of being a prisoner and a slave. And now, 13 years later, he's second in command of Egypt. But that's not the end of his story. There's something that's getting ready to happen that's even more interesting. The writer of Genesis tells, tells us that Pharaoh's dreams begin to come true. There's seven years of abundance and Joseph begins to collect the food and all the people are giving him the food and they're storing it up. And then the famine hits. And two years into the famine, something happens Joseph would have never, ever, ever anticipated. His 10 older brothers that faked his death, that sold him into slavery, they stumble in begging for food for them and their families. Look at Genesis 42, verse six. Now Joseph was the governor of the land, the person who sold grain to all its people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. And as soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from? He asked, from the land of Canaan, they replied, to buy food. Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. Then Joseph remembered the dreams he had had about them. Now, if you add up all the timestamps in Genesis, this is nine years into the famine. How old was he when we last saw him? He was 30. So he's somewhere around 39 or 40 years old. So 23 years have passed since these guys have faked his death, since these guys sold him into slavery. And 23 years later, they show up helpless and hungry and they are begging for food. And they don't know that the guy that they're begging is their younger brother, Joseph. And remember the dreams that Joseph had when he was 17 about his family bowing down to honor him? They're coming true right in front of him. Now, I want you to take a moment and imagine that you're Joseph. The people that have hurt you the most are right in front of you. What would you want to do to them? That's probably not a good idea. Don't imagine you're Joseph. Just imagine that you're you. Imagine that someone has hurt you. Imagine that someone destroyed your past. Imagine that someone 
has been a major speed bump in your life. It might have been a boss that passed over you or fired you, a coworker that sabotaged your career, a coach who refused to play you or your kid, a bully that bullied you or your kiddo, a spouse that has left you, a parent that neglected you. I mean, we don't have to think really hard about someone or some someones that we harbor a lot of bitterness towards. And think of all the ways you can retaliate. I mean, you can physically retaliate. You can get in a fight. You can verbally retaliate. You can lash out. You can legally, in some instances, you can sue them. Relationally, you can retaliate. You can get other people to turn against them. And now you have the upper hand. Or here's a really good one. This is a really popular one. You can just pretend they're dead and never, ever, ever talk to them again. This is where Joseph is. He has that kind of power. And if you read throughout Genesis, what you find is this was a really emotional thing for Joseph to process through. But eventually he decides the best thing that he can do is to reveal his true identity to his brothers. Look at what happens. Genesis 45, verse 3. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph, exclamation mark. Is my father Jacob still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Oh boy, I bet they were. Joseph had all the power. He could do anything he wanted to these jokers. Look at verse four. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. And when they had done so, he said, I'm your brother, Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. Remember that? And now listen to this. Do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me here ahead of you. Verse six, for two years now, there's been a famine in the land and it's gonna continue for the next five years. Verse seven, but God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So after 23 years of pent up anger and frustration, Joseph, he could have forced all of his brothers to be his personal slaves. So they had to experience what he experienced. He could have imprisoned them just for fun. So they had to go through what he went through. He could have humiliated them. He could have tortured them. He could have killed them. But after 23 years of suffering, Joseph also had come to the realization that Yahweh, the same God who was with him in the prison was now with him in the palace. And he had started to understand that God had used, was using his long road of suffering to serve as an unlikely pathway to save Joseph and to save his family and to accomplish God's purposes. And if you keep reading to the end of the story, here's what you discover. Joseph is reunited with his father, Jacob, and it is super emotional. And then all of Joseph's family, his dad, his brothers, their wives and their kids, all 70 of them, they come and live in Egypt under Joseph's care. He takes great care of them. But then Jacob dies and his brothers freak out. And like, well, now that dad's dead, we're dead. We're done. Look at Joseph's response in Genesis 50, verse 19. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Listen to this. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. That's the second time he said, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children to reassure them. And he spoke kindly to them. He says, don't be afraid twice. He says, I promise I'm gonna take care of you. I'm gonna continue to take care of your kids. But most importantly, he taught them a valuable lesson 
about the God that they served. Because even though, he says, even though you meant this as evil, the Lord Yahweh, he is using this to save me. He is using this to save you and to save your kids, to save our family and to accomplish a bigger promise that he made several years before. Now that, that's a pretty fascinating life story. That'd make a great prime special, wouldn't it? It's fascinating. And there's so many different takeaways we can take from this story. I heard someone say recently, the most amazing thing about Joseph's life was his ability to forgive his brothers. And I think I agree. It's tempting for us to hear this story and to think, well, does that mean that at some point God is gonna use all my suffering and all my pain, and then he's gonna elevate me to a place where I get to make a decision about what I get to do to the people that have hurt me most. I don't think that's what it means. I don't even think that's one of the takeaways. I think the big takeaway though, is what was true for Joseph is true for us. Yahweh, who was with him in the highs and in the lows, is with us no matter where we go. He is with us whether we feel it or not. And I'm just gonna be real honest with you because I'm gonna guess that you can relate to me in this. There are times when Yahweh seems impossible to see. There are times when Yahweh is really difficult to hear. There are times when you wonder, I don't even know that Yahweh knows or cares that I'm alive because it just feels that way. But what we learn in Joseph's story is he is always with us. He is good to us. He walks with us. He cares for us. He wants to use the evil that comes against us for his purposes and for his benefit. And like Joseph, we have to learn to walk faithfully with him and to pray, just show me where you are so I know how to follow you in the midst of this. Help me to live my faith in you out. Recently, I had the opportunity of, of sitting down and hearing uh, a lady in our church family, hearing her life story. I had heard about it from others and it just sounded too crazy to be true. And so she began to share it with me and I wanna share it with you. Um, I have her permission to share this story. She just asked that I not use her name. So she grew up in a really difficult home. And when she was 10 years old, the age of my daughter, she's swimming in the pool in her backyard and her stepdad comes out and tries to drown her in their family pool. At 10 years old, she wrestles herself away from her stepdad, gets out of the pool, and they have a chain link fence all the way around. He has chained the doors closed. Her only escape is to climb up and over this fence. She runs to the neighbor's house next door. Thankfully, they were there, they kept her safe. But unfortunately, a few days later, she had to go back and live in this house with her mom and her stepdad for years, terrified of what, what was gonna happen next. Now, thankfully, a few years later, she comes to know Jesus and the healing that he can provide. She grows up in her faith. And as she grows up, she shares her story with an adult friend. And her adult friend says, I really think that it would be good for you to just pray and ask God, where were you in all of that? And she said, no way. Don't wanna revisit it. Don't wanna think about it. Not gonna do it. And so a couple years go by. She wouldn't even go back to the old neighborhood. But one day she's out driving around and like the traffic pattern had changed and there were roads that were closed and like she was gonna have to go past her neighborhood. And she felt like she heard God say, I wanna show you something, just trust me. And so she said, Jerry, all I knew to do was to grip the steering wheel and begin praying a prayer. God, show me where you were, not where you weren't. Show me where you were, not where you weren't. And she said, I, like tears started to come up, my body started to shake. She was having a physical response to the trauma earlier in her life. God, show me where you were, not where you weren't. And she pulls into the neighborhood and she said that God, house by house, began to show her 
the different people that he had sent into her life. There was this family here that had her and her sister over for dinner all the time. And another house over here where this family invited them to sleep over all the time. There was another family who always took them to church every Sunday, introduced them to the Lord. And then there was this other house, this young mom with a little boy who said, hey, why don't you come and watch my son while I work out in the yard? Because somehow this young mom knew that that young girl needed to not be in her home. And so the Lord says, I've always been with you. And then he reveals to her, she's like, oh yeah, these people followed Jesus. They were just obeying his command to love their neighbor. And God says, I've always been with you. I've never not been with you. But then he says, I want you to go past your house. And she's like, I didn't want to go past that house. So she said, now I am sobbing. I am basically yelling this prayer, God, show me where you were, not where you weren't. You're going to have to show me where you were, not where you weren't. And she pulls up to her house and God reveals something to her she had never noticed before. She hadn't been to this house in years. She said, all of a sudden I noticed that our house was the only house with a chain link fence. Everybody else had a tall wooden privacy fence or no fence at all. And I'm thinking, well, why does that matter? And she said, I'll tell you why it matters. The Lord revealed to me that when I was 10 years old, my little feet were small enough to get in that fence and up and, up and away. And God said, I've been with you all the time through the fences and the friendships. I've never left you. I'm never going to leave you. Now you would expect this lady to be pretty bitter towards God. I have texted her all week long of people that heard her story and said, here's, here's another story of people that were encouraged. And her response is, praise God. I have prayed that God would use my story to encourage people. Now you read Joseph's story and it seems like, oh, that's one guy a long time ago. That's, I don't know, maybe that happened, maybe it didn't. But then you hear her story late in our church family and it happened. And she doesn't just live to tell the tale, she worships God in the process. And so as we wrap up today, I wanna to take just 60 seconds and I wanna challenge you to pray that prayer in your seats. And today, this honestly is just the beginning of the process, but would you be bold enough to say, God, would you show me where you were, not where you weren't? So take a moment. In fact, I think it'd be good, just close your eyes. Take a moment and pray that prayer. Let him take you to a place. God, show me where you were, not where you weren't. I don't know where he's leading you, but I want you to ignore Satan's voice that says, don't go there. Ignore his voice that says, yeah, but somebody else's matters more to God. That's not true. I wanna invite you to begin praying this prayer. God, show me where you are now. Show me where you are so I can see you because he is with you and he loves you and he cares about you. In fact, I think the biggest takeaway from Joseph's story is that Joseph's story points us to Jesus. Think of all the similarities. Loved by his father, it was true for Joseph, it's true for Jesus. Hated by his brothers, it was true for Joseph, it's true for Jesus. 
sold into slavery, sold out by a friend. Joseph was thrown into a pit and left to die. He was raised to a place of power where he was able to forgive his brothers. Jesus died on a cross. They took his body, they laid it in a tomb. And then he rose from the dead and is seated right now at the right hand of God, offering forgiveness to all humanity. Joseph's story is meant to point us to the reality of Jesus. And we're going to respond by singing a song, worshiping Jesus for the good plans he has for us. But during the song, I'm going to be hanging out over here. If you need to pray about something God has revealed to you today, or if you're ready to begin following Jesus, right now would be a really good time to respond to him or before service ends today. But let's lean into his goodness and let's worship him for who he is and all the good that he displays in our lives. Would you stand and worship with us?